0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them.
1: I don't want to see anybody else hurt through this year. Don't want anybody to have to go to prison or anything like that. So why not get this over with? Give us the explanation as to where Kim is so that we can go and find her and bring her home.
2: Richard Moreau, along with his daughters Diane and Karen, have not stopped searching for Kim since the night she walked out the front door on May 10th, 1986. For months, she was cast off as a runaway as crucial time ticked by. The Moreau family had no choice but to start searching for answers themselves. What you're about to hear, the details of the night Kim Moreau disappeared, it's all been pieced together through the family's own investigation Leads they've independently checked, interviews they've conducted themselves, combined with information uncovered by detectives and other local and state law enforcement. Still, 35 years later, no one has been charged with any crime as it relates to the disappearance of Kimberly Moreau. But the names you'll hear have long been publicly associated with the case. What remains now To complete the intricate jigsaw puzzle and see the full picture of what happened to Kim that night and where she is now are key pieces withheld for decades.
0: We're just trying to get my sister home so people man up and speak up and tell us where she is.
2: I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is The Disappearance of Kim Moreau, Part 2, on Dark Down East. When Dick and his wife, Kim's mom, Pat, got home from the VFW party across the street from their Jewel Street home around quarter of two in the morning, the first thing they did was check in on their daughters. Karen was in her room, but Kim was not. It was odd, not yet concerning, but not altogether normal. The father and mother of three girls were no strangers to the routine of waiting up for their kids. But by 5 a.m., with still no sign of their youngest daughter, the worry set in. Dick and Pat went straight to the J. Police Department.
1: We get there. They tell us, that, oh, no, you've got to wait 48 hours before you can report her missing. He says, well, this isn't normal. They said, you've got to wait 48 hours. And they start, I mean, he was quite adamant about it, so... My wife and I left, when we went home.
2: In those crucial 48 hours, the waiting period to report their daughter missing, the Morrow family scrambled to locate Kim on their own. They knew one thing for sure, and it became the starting point for the entire investigation. After Kim canceled prom plans with her boyfriend, Mike Staples, she spent the final hours before she went missing with her friend, Rhonda Breton.
1: All I know is later on she went, she walked down the hill and she walked over uh, by the park down on Livermore Falls and her girlfriend Rhonda met her down there. Then Rhonda's boyfriend at the time came riding by in a brand new car and invited them to go with them.
2: What the family and investigators have learned in the years since Kim's disappearance is that two men were in the car not boys from high school, but men, both in their mid-twenties. Their names were Darren Jodry and Brian Enman. And the car that pulled up that day was Darren's brand-new white 86 Trans Am.
1: The girls got in the back seat and the guys were in the front seat. And I guess from what we found out, they went riding all over Heck. They went to Primerton, they went to Lawston, they... They were riding all over. Unfortunately, we also know that that day there was some drugs and alcohol that got involved.
2: Riding around from town to rural main town was just the thing to do when there was nothing else to keep you busy. Richard told me that his own car, the one his three girls shared, clocked over 100,000 miles within the first year he owned it and went through $100 in gas a week, even back when gas was cheap. And yes, Richard learned that drugs and alcohol were part of that car ride. In my research, I discovered that although blood alcohol limits for drivers in Maine were set in 1969, drinking while driving was not prohibited in Maine until 1987, a year after Kim hopped into the White Trans Am with Rhonda, Brian and Darren. The finer details and specifics of what those four did together that night, where they went, and who else they may have encountered along the way, wouldn't be revealed until later. But Rhonda Breton was one of the first people they wanted to speak to as the Moreau family tried to figure out why Kim hadn't come home that night. Strangely, Rhonda didn't have much to say. She seemed unwilling to help. With each conversation either the family or police managed to have with Rhonda, her story changed and shifted. Despite the notes upon notes passed between the two teens that proved otherwise, Rhonda claimed that she and Kim weren't even that close. In Kim's sister Karen's statement to J-Police, handwritten in neat curled print on lined paper, Karen says that, Rhonda was asked if Kim was with her and Darren. She wouldn't answer. She suggested we look for Kim in Farmington or Old Orchard. We had a friend of Kim's go to different houses in Farmington looking for Kim. But no one has seen her.
3: After Kim went missing... You got to realize my family is getting like no help from police. We, we just felt like Kim disappeared. Nobody's helping. They're putting it on the news that she's a runaway. And the family started doing our own searches. We were going around friend to friend asking, trying to find out anything we could.
2: One day. As the Moreau family waited for any action by law enforcement and fought the story that Kim was a runaway, Karen and her boyfriend Bob spotted the white car sitting in front of a pizza spot in town called Rosie's. The car, according to her recollection, was the same one that had been waiting for Kim the night she disappeared. It was Darren Jodry's car. Me and Bob
3: pulled up. We found Darren. And we pulled up beside him in his car. And Bob rolls down the window, and he looks over, and me being the mouthpiece that I am, looked over and said, where is Kim? And he instantly, I don't know no f-ing Kim. Who's Kim, you know? And starts giving a slip. And... It's like, you do know Kim. She was with Rhonda on May 10th. And I want to know, where is my sister? And his comment to me and Bob was, oh, was that her name? And you know, that was in 1986. And I will never forget those words because even to me, it just seems so past tense. Was that her name? Maybe to the average person, that was just, oh, was that her name? la dee But to me, it, it just seemed like it was past tense. Like, oh, it should have been, is that her name? Was just seemed like he already knew she's gone. And you know, needless to say, He started the car, squealed out of there, and wanted nothing more to do with looking at me.
2: Darren was definitely in the car for part of that night, but it's largely agreed that Darren wasn't the one driving it. It was his brand new car, yes, but for whatever reason, Brian Enman was the one driving it on May 10th, 1986. Darren was working the evening shift at the paper mill, and so he would have been at work by the time his car pulled up to the Moreau's home and waited for Kim as she freshened up inside. By very short process of elimination, if it wasn't Darren Jodry driving the car, and Brian Enman was driving the car earlier in the evening, it's assumed that Brian Enman was still driving the car when Kim climbed back inside it that night. I don't like to work off assumptions, but luckily in this case, Brian Enman himself would later confirm that yes, he was driving the car, and he revealed other details about that evening, details that don't pass Mr. Moreau's sniff test to this day. Brian Enman first told police that he was with Kim that night, and he was the one driving Darren's car. They rode around, parked at a spot in town known as Piss Hill to talk, and then when it was time for Kim to get back home, Brian said she insisted on being dropped off down the street. He claimed that the fight Kim had with her boyfriend Mike Staples was really getting to her and in a state of distress. She asked to be let out at the bottom of the hill near the monument at Chisholm Square. It would have been about a half mile away from her home in the pitch black night. That detail is something Dick couldn't believe for a second.
1: No damn way in hell. I said, she wouldn't even come walk up that damn walk from my neighbor's house to our house and there was nothing in between without calling us first, have us put a light on and make sure one of us was standing on the porch waiting for it. This idea that they're gonna drop her about a uh, half a mile from the house and that she's gonna walk home at one o'clock, supposedly 1.15 in the morning, that's a crock of bull. Because I know no way in heck she'd ever do that.
2: The specifics of Brian Enman's story shifted throughout the years. But one thing has remained constant. Brian Edmond says he dropped Kim off to walk back home alone, and he doesn't have any idea what happened to her next. Meanwhile, Diane and Karen's independent efforts to learn anything they could about their little sister's disappearance continued. They knew the people Kim was known to hang around at the time, and so they spent their days riding around town, picking up the phone, and talking to whoever they could. As snippets of stories and fuzzy recollections of that night emerged, a new name made the Moreau's radar, a man named Calvin Tidswell. Calvin Tidswell's family owned a farm in town, and from what I gather they were well known and respected but it seemed Calvin took advantage of his family's stature. He caused trouble in school, but seemed to always get out of it. Old classmates of his say he wasn't afraid to mouth off to teachers, but he seemed to skate by without any real repercussions as a teenager. However, his childhood misbehavior evolved into criminal activity as an adult. In 1978, at 18 years old, Calvin Tidswell was arrested for stealing a car and crashing it. He had a passenger that day, and the passenger died as a result of the crash. Calvin pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, among other charges, and he served two years at Maine State Prison. According to reporting by the Lewiston Sun-Journal in 2004, Calvin earned his GED while in prison for the first time, but he also sparked friendships with the career criminals, the convicted thieves and drug dealers that surrounded him. Once released from prison, Calvin opened an arcade on Main Street in Livermore. It was called the Dragon's Den, and it was a favorite hangout spot for all the students in town. Those students were also his primary clientele for another business venture Calvin was pursuing, his first foray into dealing drugs himself. At first, just selling pot to the neighborhood kids. He mostly avoided any run-ins with the law for the next six years, other than a few minor misdemeanors. Calvin's next arrest and prison sentence wasn't until 1986, after Kim went missing. He assaulted a police officer who was trying to break up a party. Then, in 1989, he was busted for selling cocaine during an undercover operation and spent 12 years in prison. In 2004, when he was interviewed by the Sun Journal for a piece about ex-cons struggling to find work, Calvin said, quote, "'I did a lot of dumb things when I was young, "'but I've matured, I've aged. "'I understand what I want in life. "'I just want what the basic person wants.'" He also told the paper, "'I'd rather starve then hustled drugs again," unquote. The very same day that front page article was published in the Sun Journal, Calvin was arrested again, again, for selling cocaine. First, he was sentenced to another five years in prison for violating the terms of his release, but he also faced charges of aggravated trafficking in cocaine, which carried a maximum sentence of 40 years. But in 1986, before he assaulted the police officer at a party, before the cocaine and trafficking charges and federal prison sentence, Kelvin was just the arcade owner in Livermore, Maine, with a checkered past but an apparent buddy to the teens in town. Although he was at least six or seven years older than Kim and the other high school students who hung out at his arcade, he befriended many of them and was a staple in the new group of people Kim was spending her time with. In notes written by Rhonda Breton to Kim, she mentions Calvin's name frequently. I'll call Calvin when we get to my house and don't let me forget to call Calvin. And yes, I'm sure Calvin will drink with us. According to detailed notes kept by the family, a witness saw Kim at a party the night of May 10th, 1986. Calvin Tidswell was also at that party. The witness was confident of the date because it was the night before Mother's Day.
0: I was at work one day and I used to call home every day at lunchtime to check in with my mother to see if there was any news on Kim. Well, one of these days she said she hadn't heard anything and I said, well, mom, you know what? I said, I'm gonna pick up my phone this morning and I'm calling Calvin and I'm gonna ask him straight out if he's heard anything. And he told me, I haven't seen her, I have no idea where she is, and I don't know nothing about the night. And it's like, why are you trying to hide things? You know, people told us, you know, you've seen her. Nope, don't know nothing.
2: The story was something new to go on. And as Dick and Karen and Diane started asking around, more people confirmed that version of events with a few other concerning details. Witnesses said that Kim's interactions with Calvin Tidswell at the party were volatile. They argued. And things may have even gotten physical. Calvin denied those rumors, and he discredited the witnesses who made the statements. In September of 1986, around the time Kim was finally listed in the NCIC database and media coverage was finally sharing her name and picture, Calvin was in jail for the assault charge. Although he'd been previously dismissive of any contact by Diane and the rest of Kim's family, Calvin decided to write Mr. and Mrs. Moreau a letter to clear a few things up. It begins, After reading recent newspaper articles and listening to the vicious rumors I've heard in town, I thought it was time to write you personally. The stories I read in the newspaper don't even come close to what I know of Kim. Calvin in that letter goes on to share just how close he and Kim were, how they became very good friends and spent a lot of time together, like the day he drove her to visit Mike Staples at the treatment center in New Hampshire. He casted off the rumors about what happened that night at the party as distracting to the investigation. He wrote, if we can't get these stories straightened back towards the truth, None of us will ever be able to do anything to find her because too much energy is going to the wrong places. The letter continues, I realize with the rumors what they are, I am probably the last person you would want to hear from, but I had to write. I do not wish to upset you as I know this is the hardest thing you've ever had to deal with. I write because I am concerned too. Here's the thing with this case. With not a single shred of physical evidence to set the investigation off on a solid, confident path in search of the truth, all that the Moreaus and detectives had to go on, all they still have to go on is witness statements, recollections pulled from deep in the memory banks of then teenagers, conversations with unwilling individuals who, for whatever reason, decided to withhold information or fabricate stories, counterproductive to the final goal of finding Kim. But rumors and exaggerated stories and false details of that night aside, one thing is verifiably true as it relates to Calvin Tidswell. Mike Staples and Kim Moreau had swapped class rings during their relationship. Kim wore Mike's on a chain around her neck and Mike had hers, but somehow, In the weeks following her disappearance,
1: Calvin ended up with the class ring.
2: The story they were told was that Mike Staples wanted to pawn the ring for a couple bucks, but instead Calvin supposedly took it in trade for a bottle of alcohol. When the Moreaus heard Calvin had Kim's class ring, obviously they wanted it back from prison Calvin gave them precise instructions for locating it. He had it in a cupboard at his mother's house for safekeeping. As a Dark Downies listener, you know the world can be an unpredictable place. But with every case, we've learned one thing. Your vigilance and preparation can be your greatest defense— that's why you should invest in Simply Safe Home Security today. Simply Safe is whole home protection with sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. But the piece I appreciate the most is the line of indoor and outdoor cameras so I can have eyes everywhere, even when I'm away. How many stories have we heard about investigations stalling out because a location didn't have cameras or the cameras just weren't working that day? Of course, I hope I never have to rely on my cameras for that kind of info, but knowing they're there watching who's coming and going at my house, both the invited and uninvited guests, gives me a sense of security I hadn't had in my own home before. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/downeast that's SimplySafe.com/slash down There's no safe like Simply Safe. Months turned into a year as the investigation into Kim Moreau's disappearance crept along without answers. But not for lack of effort. Without any physical evidence, the trail went cold fast, and investigators were left with the same questionable stories and rumors about what happened that night. The Moreaus continued to keep detailed notes and host their own conversations with the people they believed to be with Kim on the night of May 10th. Rhonda Britton's story continued to change, and she avoided any interactions with Dick Moreau.
1: After Kim disappeared, we went to talk to her, and the girls were with me. And... She didn't even want to talk to us. She turned around and she actually started to run away from
2: us. After graduation, Rhonda Breton moved to California, and she was rarely back in town. She died in 2009, the victim of a tragic hit-and-run accident. If she knew the truth about what happened to Kim Moreau, she took it to her grave. What about Mike Staples, the boyfriend or maybe ex-boyfriend of Kim at the time? They'd had a blowout fight big enough to cancel their plans to attend junior prom together. He did agree to police interviews throughout the years, but he's largely on the fringe of the case. Dick felt that Mike's lack of concern or interest in the case was always odd.
1: Did he ever pick up the phone and say, have you found her yet? To this day, he has never asked that question and always made me wonder why. I mean, if I was dating a woman, a girl, and I had her class ring and she disappeared, I think I'd be checking with the family periodically as to what's the status on her. Did Did they find her yet or not? He never did. And I found that awfully strange.
2: Calvin Tidswell, Darren Jodry, and Brian Enman submitted to polygraph tests, multiple actually. The results of those tests are unknown. It seemed investigators weren't going to glean any new information from the three men in question, but Dick Morell wasn't finished with them yet. As the case bounced from detective to detective Mr. Moreau and his family were the only continuity that the case had. Dick sat across the table or picked up the phone to talk to Brian, Darren, and Calvin throughout the years. At the very least, he called family members and anyone close to them at the time of Kim's disappearance. Several years after the fact, Dick actually had Brian Enman over to his house for a conversation. And it's during that conversation Brian let a little more information slip.
1: He admitted he was driving the car. He also admitted that they waited for Kim and that Rhonda was in the car. And he said that they went up and they dropped Rhonda at her house, which was just around, right down the foot of this hill. That they took her home and that They left, and they went, and they had — and this always got me — he stressed this very strongly — they had consensual sex.
2: Consensual sex. Brian, after so many years sticking to the story that he'd parked at Piss Hill just to talk, he told Moreau he'd had consensual sex with his daughter on the night she went missing. He didn't just divulge that major detail to Dick. He was sharing it on the news.
3: I remember sitting down one night watching TV and there was a story on about Kim and Brian was interviewed. And that night he came on TV and said, I had consensual sex with Kim during one of the broadcasts and i remember being immediately irate and consensual sex nobody says that i made love to her i anything other than consensual i remember screaming at the tv that night and getting very very angry that why aren't you looking into this more why
2: why is it more happening Why give this information now? The family speculates that it's because of advancements in DNA testing at the time. And speaking of DNA evidence, what about the car? The car that was waiting for Kim in the driveway, the one she got into that night? No one has disputed that she was in the car, the 1986 white Trans Am, and so her DNA would likely be in the vehicle. If something bad happened to Kim inside the vehicle, there might be even more DNA to reveal that. So was the car searched? It was, but not for 17 years. Years turned into decades for the Morrow family and still no sign of their sister and daughter, 17-year-old Kimberly. Mr. Moreau continued to hang his posters, with Kim's face smiling at every car that passed. He estimates that he's distributed over 50,000 posters at this point, all across the world.
1: Posters went totally around the world because the destinations that we had, and they said yes when, they, when there's truckload of paper or whatever got there they had they had the posters. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like Belgium, South America, over in China, Japan, South Korea, India. I mean so I can say that Kim went around the world. It's ironic because that was a really one of the things that you wanted to do, but that's not the way that it was supposed to be.
2: Before social media and the Facebook group dedicated to finding Kim, those posters were the source of many tips. Each time their phones rang, it set the same cycle in motion.
1: Most of the doggone time it comes at night, here you were, you were probably in bed and you were asleep and the phone rang and you picked up the phone and you got somebody on the other end telling you that, hey, I know where your daughter is, or I know where your
2: sister is. The stories they've been told about what happened to Kim are difficult to hear.
1: Oh, they took her and uh, they fed her to the pigs up on this farm, or she turned around and uh, uh, she was quartered and put up on these four mountains, and there's a piece of her on these four mountains or through that combine.
0: And then they, the biggest thing that they keep coming out now, you hear a lot of times, um, "Are you sure she's not in that sex trafficking ring? You know, did they sell her because she was cute and blonde? Did they sell her to somebody because she was cute and blonde? It, where is she? Uh, is she still out there? Are they keeping her locked up in a basement somewhere?
1: No matter how ridiculous it sounds, we haven't got Kim, so it's still a possibility. Try to fall back asleep after you hear that. You aren't going to fall asleep.
2: But still, they keep answering the phone because that phone call might be the last piece of the puzzle that brings Kim home once and for all.
1: You can't tell me nothing. There's absolutely nothing that you could possibly tell me that. We have neither thought of ourselves or already heard it. Probably heard it many times. Don't now. say it's going to hurt my feelings. My feelings are hurt that Kim isn't here.
2: Kim Moreau's mother, Dick's wife Pat, passed away in 1987 after her battle with liver cancer. Dick made her a promise to never stop searching for Kim. And the last 35 years of his life, along with the lives of Diane and Karen, have been defined by that search. They are the sisters, the father, of the missing Kim Moreau. And they keep searching. But Diane explained that it's a complex feeling being out there, searching for your own sister.
4: Please let us bring her home, but please don't let me be the one to find her. It's the scariest thing you ever know, being out there knowing that you could stumble upon your sister. Not something that anybody should ever have to do.
2: But they've done it, many times throughout the years.
4: And the other thing is, none of us were trained to go out and do these searches or actually be out there looking for her, not knowing that if we any of us actually did find anything, we could have done more damage than not going to look for her.
2: State police have stepped in to conduct many official searches throughout the years when the information and tips proved viable enough to get involved. One of those searches went down in August of 2015 when state police obtained a search warrant for property owned by Brian Enman. Sergeant Mark Holmquist of the Major Crimes Unit clarified that Brian Enman is neither a suspect or a person of interest but he was one of the last people to see Kim alive on May 10th, 1986. Holmquist told the Bangor Daily News, He's always been someone we've tried to maintain a good relationship with, trying to keep open lines of communication. Anytime you have someone in the case who was the last person to see the person you're looking for, obviously that's a person you want to approach from time to time to see if anything has come up. Unquote. The land they searched belonged to someone else in 1986, but Brian Enman later bought it. State police showed up unannounced and spent four days searching the land with ground-penetrating radar, cadaver dogs, and a backhoe. They removed the skirting around the mobile home, and with the ground-penetrating radar inside a plastic sled, technicians dragged it across the area beneath the mobile home as humane geology professors took down readings. Meanwhile, cadaver dogs signaled several times that human remains were on land adjacent to the property owned by Brian Edmond. Brian told the Sun Journal during the search of his property, quote, If they come up with nothing, I'm going to be even more upset. They come in humiliating me. I've got my name plastered all over Facebook. They have no proof of nothing yet. Last night? I found my home all tore open. People are just grasping at straws, is what I think. I wish they could resolve it. I don't think they're going to do it by looking at me. I've got zero stuff." When asked if he thought police would find anything on his property, Brian said, "...not that I know of." After four days, no new evidence was found. Brian Edmond repeated the same story he'd stuck to for years, telling the Kennebec Journal that he and another man drank alcohol and did cocaine the night Kim disappeared. He dropped her off down the road from her house, and that's the last he saw her. The ground-penetrating radar came out again in 2019 when state police searched an area that had long been part of the rumor and lore surrounding Kim Moreau's disappearance. It was a concrete slab that was once the base of Charlie Pride's fruit stand on Route 4 in Livermore. The slab was on private property. According to my research, The fruit stand was once a part of Calvin Tidswell's family farm.
4: The day after Kim disappeared is the day that that slab was born. And we've heard from years and years and years through rumors. I mean, most of everything that we hear, unless we can actually pin it down, everything is just a rumor to us. So we've heard over the year, for years and years and years, that that's where they buried her. You know, it would be the perfect spot. Yes. The next morning, they come in and they pour the slab down. So they actually had somebody come in with ground penetrating radar, and they could see something underneath. But they had no idea what it was. So it was enough evidence, with all of everything we've heard over the years, to get the state police to come in and finally do the. Effort. And we also had to have the landowners' permission to come in and dig it up. So they finally let us do that.
2: The Maine Department of Transportation assisted state police in the search, using jackhammers to demolish the concrete slab. They removed all the concrete material and dug a few feet into the ground beneath it as the Morrow family stood nearby, watching and waiting.
4: Then it was just, that was the creepiest thing standing there, watching that, knowing, hmm. She could be under there, and we've driven by this place thousands and thousands of times over the years, and she could have been right there, not knowing. And you could have driven by these places where she could be and have no clue that she's
2: even there. The dig turned up nothing.
1: I'm getting a lot older. I've got a lot more medical issues than I used to have. Don't know how many more years I can do this, but thank goodness for the guys that work with me. We have got a real good team, at least I feel a very solid team and very knowledgeable in many fields.
2: Jared Pinkham has been part of that solid team surrounding the Moreau family for over eight years. I first spoke with Jared back in September of 2020 and that's when I became immersed in the decades of details surrounding Kim Moreau's disappearance. In our first phone conversation, Jared got me up to speed on the most current efforts to locate Kim. Those current efforts included following a tip that had to do with little-known gold mine shafts in Livermore. The story of the Livermore gold mines and the men who pursued the mining ventures And what they ultimately found deep below the surface, it's a very long story. But I can tell you how it ends, because that's the most important part as it relates to the search for Kim Moreau. According to research by A. Hamilton Boothby in his paper, A History of Gold Mining in the Town of Livermore, Maine, a number of factors led to the ultimate demise of the gold mining endeavors. Financially, it was tough to float— and lenders weren't keen on supporting the business when Maine wasn't really known for being a gold state. Though they did strike some gold, as well as silver and platinum in the early 1900s, the mines in Livermore were abandoned as the business folded. However, the 40 and 50 feet deep holes didn't really go away. The tip that came in to Jared and the search team revolved around those two mine shafts and someone close to the case having knowledge of those two very deep holes in the ground. Not every tip that comes through is good enough, so to speak, or strong enough for Maine State Police to get involved. But this tip got their attention. Maine State Police showed up and started digging.
5: There was two gold mine shafts. One's 50 feet down, the other one's 35. For some reason, they left one hole up to us and the state police took care of the other hole. And we did a search for Kim in the 50 foot shaft. The 35 foot shaft that was right next to it was filled with muck and mire and vertical trees and timbers stuck down inside this thing to the point where I have two state troopers above me. I'm eight foot in the hole, jumped down eight feet and didn't fall. There was so much stuff there. I felt like I was on a lily pad. So for some reason, the state police shrugged that one off and we went out there and dug it. And we went out there with quite the crew Um, We had landowner permission and we dug that thing. We went down inside this shaft several times. We pumped out the water, we popped out the muck, we took out the vertical beams, we took out the trees, we took out everything we could. We had about eight feet to go. And this was late October at this point and it started to get really, really icy. And we had to call it off because it was getting scary. And if anybody would have fallen in that hole at that point because there was nothing in it anymore except eight feet, they would have died. We would, somebody would have hit their head and, and that would have been it. Would have died. We had eight feet left. So we get a hold of the landowner and we tell them, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it, unfortunately. We have to call it off just because of safety reasons. We're going to be back in the spring. We're going to finish out this last eight feet.
2: But they never got the chance to finish what they started.
5: The landowner takes his permission away from us over, over the uh, winter. And we were not allowed to go back and search the extra eight feet. And the state police did nothing about it. So here we are, we spent all this time in two shafts. We have eight feet to go. And to this day, we still don't know what's in those eight feet.
3: I've missed out on all of my sister's life. I sometimes imagine what she would be like today. We live in a very small town. This should, sorry, um, this should not have happened. I wish today I could go back and change that night and stop her. Hug your loved one, appreciate what you have, and make sure you tell them you love them because you never know what tomorrow will bring. And I just want to stress that we appreciate everybody's thoughts, but I still don't have my answer. And I really need Kim buried by my my mom and my grandparents and my family. We need closure. We really do need help. And the answer is out there. Please help us.
1: to be able to write a song about my daughter I says it isn't going to be the greatest song but I says that's all right she'll know where it's coming from because it's gonna come from here I gave up the one to, behold, to be-
6: First time I saw you Smiley.
2: I sat down with Richard, Karen, Diane, Jared, and the anonymous individual around Mr. Moreau's dining table in J. Maine, I got a call from Jared. A tip had popped up in the Facebook group dedicated to finding Kim. And as they do with every piece of information, Jared and the Moreaus took steps to verify it and cross-check its credibility. The tip seemed legit by their standards. And they're more discerning with every year that passes and so they handed it off to state police most of the time state police don't pursue the leads sometimes it takes them a while to take action if they do at all simply due to their active caseloads and other ongoing investigations but this time state police deemed this most recent tip worth pursuing right now This second week of May 2021, if you're listening as this episode airs, Maine State Police are searching for Kim in a specific location detailed in that tip. To protect the search, I will not be disclosing that location. However, if or with the greatest hope when that search reveals any new information about the disappearance of Kim Moreau, I'll report it here on Dark Down East. Maybe this search will be the last. Maybe Dick Moreau will get to tear down the posters as an act of triumph and throw the party they've been dreaming of throwing to celebrate Kim's return home. Maybe the Moreau family won't have to see another May 10th pass by without the answers they've been seeking for 35 years.
1: We want to thank everybody that's ever helped us. We will never be able to go back and repay all the people that's helped us. So please give us Kim.
2: The family is offering a $5,000 reward for verifiable information leading to the location and discovery of Kim Moreau or her remains. Email justwanttofindher at gmail.com or call Richard Moreau, 207-320-5997. Until Kim Moreau is found and returned to her family, her story is not over. I'll be staying in close contact with the Morrow family, and when there's an update in her case, I will share it with you here on Dark Down East. Sources for this episode, including links to individual articles, are listed in the show notes at darkdowneast.com. A special, special thank you to Richard, Diane, Karen, Jared, and that anonymous individual also sitting at the table that day. Thank you all for sharing Kim's story with me. For key pictures and other information relating to this case, visit darkdowneast.com. And don't forget to subscribe and review Dark Down East on Apple Podcasts. If you have a connection to this case, reach out at hello at darkdowneast.com. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families like the Moreau's who have lost their loved ones and are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and murder cases. I am not about to let those names, to let Kim Moreau's name, get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East.